From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Anna Bernasek. Hi, and welcome to Forward Thinking. I'm Michael Chewy. And I'm Anna Bernasek. This episode, we're listening in on a conversation between Melody Hobson, the co-chair of Aerial Investments, and MGI's co-chair, James Manika. And it's a really personal discussion of her experience as a black woman in finance, reaching great levels of success, having to be an only in the room, and taking that success and advocating on behalf of others. And what stood out to me was, for all the talk about diversity and inclusion over the past years, what does it really take to get there? A lot of companies have made public commitments to improve representation. But what I love about this conversation is that Melody really takes you know, this large goal to improve equity in, in the world and society and breaks it down from the macro down to the micro, literally telling parts of her story, including you know, one person who was a sponsor for her early in her career that allowed her to have so much impact going forward, and she continues to to this very day. Indeed, you know, we're privileged at the McKinsey Global Institute to be collaborating with the McKinsey Institute on Black Economic Mobility to do a study on how black people within the United States participate in the economy. Um, you know, one of the things that we're starting to find is some of the disparities that we see are really concentrated uh, in certain areas by occupation or by industry. And you know, the, the, the hopeful or optimistic thing about that is perhaps if we concentrate on some of those concentrated disparities, we can really move the needle in terms of equity in the U.S. And speaking of change, something our listeners might like to know is that Melody was appointed as Starbucks' new chair of its board of directors. And through a gift to Princeton, a new residential college will be built and named after her. And that's the first at the university to be named for a black woman. And she's continued to be a prominent advocate for corporate diversity and inclusion, which she discusses in this interview. And one more note for our listeners. This conversation was recorded in McKinsey San Francisco office in February 2020, just before the COVID-19 impacted all of our lives. We've got some photos on our website and social media accounts, so be sure to check those out at mckinsey.com MGI or on Twitter at McKinsey underscore MGI. Uh, well, first of all, thank you all for coming. It's a busy week. It's a short week. I'm just trying to cram everything in. Uh, but we thought as part of our celebration of uh, Black History Month, uh, we'd all try to get together. And I've never actually believed it. You know when people say some people need no introduction? I actually don't buy that. I think actually when people have done some pioneering, remarkable things, we should actually introduce them and celebrate what they've done. Uh, and after all, it's Black History Month, so we're pioneering people doing amazing things. We should celebrate them. So uh, I'm delighted to welcome my friend Melody, Melody Hobson, and it's been a remarkable story of inspiration and leadership, uh, all the way from the south side of Chicago, ending up in Princeton. By the way, lots of universities actually offered you positions, by the way, lots of them. But anyway, you chose Princeton. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and there's actually a story behind that, there too. Is. We may come back to that. Uh, and then, uh, actually, while you were in Princeton, I think you interned at Ariel. Uh, and, and she went to Ariel as, as, as a summer intern and, and ended up as the co-CEO. So that's a remarkable journey in itself. We'll come back to some of that. But, you know, if you look at where Melody is today, gosh, pick, pick any topic, any arena you want. Uh, she's on the board of J.P. Morgan Chase. She's the vice chair of Starbucks. Uh, she was chairwoman of, uh, you know, DreamWorks Animation. Uh, pick a, a different arena. She's on the board of the Rockefeller Foundation. She's a philanthropist herself. She's started community organizations, and she's been celebrated. She, in 2016, she was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. So you can almost pick up any arena you want in American business, uh, in society, in community. I think you'd probably find Melody involved in playing some important uh, pioneering role there. One of the other things that's actually quite remarkable, Melody, is that when you go around the world, as many of us do, uh, I'm always amazed how everybody from CEOs, business leaders, uh, you know, speak, um, you know, often are people are, who are counseled by Melody or talked to Melody or spend time with Melody and how they speak remarkably about what she's doing and how inspirational she is as a business leader, as an investor. But you also get uh, the kind of inspiration that she provides to women in business, including the pioneering things that she's done, and then to people like us, people of color. So it's just a remarkable story. That's why it just gives me such enormous pleasure 
uh, to welcome. So help, please help me in welcoming Melody, who's Thank you so much. I am so happy to be here. It was an easy thing to do. I just landed from Chicago, and I live part-time in San Francisco. Well, actually, well, one of the things that, uh, so Melody and I were just catching up before we started this, and she was kind of describing what she's been up to the last week. I actually thought that would be a fun place to start. Just maybe give us a sense of your last week. What have you been up to? Well, it's been a crazy week because I um, left San Francisco last Thursday to fly to Chicago because it was All-Star Weekend in Chicago. And Ariel is based in Chicago. And All-Star Weekend was one of those situations where you could kill a lot of birds with one stone. Um, and I started off on Thursday. I landed and I did something for the NBA with um, the WNBA. I did um, a panel with them with the head of Deloitte and one of their um, – and a local news person interviewing us about all sorts of issues. But it was really focused on women because of the WNBA and what they're trying to do there. And they had just signed their CBA. And so there was a lot of conversation about pay equality and things like that, which was fascinating. And then the next day I woke up and did something for the NBA, um, which was pretty fascinating because I had everyone on my panel from Adam Silver to the owner of the Celtics. And it was just, and Bill Murray was the MC. It was just really, really, really weird. And he introduced me as Melody, and he said she has two L's, and she's chief co-chief executive officer, which has two F's. It was just really, it was like, that's how he was introducing me. Um, but I went from that. I hosted a dinner that night for at my apartment for people who were in town, and it was a very funny group of people all coming together. My husband had a funny line because um, one of my friends is Dana Owens, who's also known as Queen Latifah. And so someone came in and they were like, I didn't know there was going to be royalty. <laughs> so it was just super funny. And, um, and then from there, we did an event. I chair an organization called After School Matters. So the next day, we were very, very lucky to be selected by Gucci that did a pop-up store and we got their profits with one other organization. After School Matters is the largest after-school program in the world. We serve about 26,000 kids a year in Chicago. There are 100,000 and high school, school, school students in Chicago that are in public schools, and we serve 25,000 of them. We're the largest employer of teens in Chicago in the summer. Last year, we employed 13,500 teens, and we pay our teens to come to our programs after school. We have 1,000 programs around the city of Chicago. So to get Gucci's endorsement, the global CEO was there as well as the USA CEO. And of course, I felt like I had to buy stuff. <laughs> so I said I had to go to Gucci to go shopping for After School Matters to get them excited. I was like, you know, I think I already paid the mortgage at one of the stores. But I said, why don't I just make sure you feel excited about doing this with us? And then from there, it was um, President's Day, but we still work that day. I was interviewing because I'm replacing my chief of staff, who is being promoted to move to the West Coast to do sales for us. So I was entering the, interviewing these rock star um, people to be potentially chief of staff for me. And then the rest of the week inside of Ariel was heavy, heavy, heavy duty, client meetings, team meetings, portfolio reviews, all sorts of things, late nights, days. I mean, I averaged probably about five hours a night, every night. And my husband gave me the speech at the end. And he said, some of you may know, this is a long answer, that I married Yoda's dad, right? <laughs> and um, my husband said to me, you know, Melody, I have no idea why you do what you do. I have no idea. He's Because I wake up at four, like all these crazy things. And he was like, and this is what my sense is. I have no doubt you're going to get to the top of that mountain that you're climbing. But my only concern from you is that when you get to the top, it's going to be super foggy. And you're going to look out and say, I can't see anything. <laughs> I was like, are those words of encouragement? <laughs> no, but, but, but he's, he's, I mean, yeah, I remember last time we had lunch in San Francisco. Uh, so we're having lunch in San Francisco at a restaurant down the street. And I didn't realize he was waiting outside. In the, the car. Time, in the car. <laughs> so we have to, Is that a good husband? <laughs> Because we had stopped, we really needed to get. He waited in the car. So exactly. sweet. Exactly. That's no, wonderful. But 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 but, but um, one of the things that I mean, it, your story is so remarkable uh, and so inspiring. But 
as you look back, uh, you've now spent, you just reminded me, 28 years at Ariel. What have been some of the most formative experiences for you that you'd point to as you look back and say, that was important, that was pivotal, I learned a lot from that. How do you, what have been the most formative experience? I'll give you a couple because they're odd, but they really did make a difference. So the first was when I was an intern at Ariel. I'm a summer intern. I'm between my sophomore and junior year in college. And John Rogers, the founder of our firm, who started the firm when he was 24 years old, whose father gave him stocks every birthday and every Christmas instead of toys, starting when he was 12, has started this company when he's 24. Now, this isn't like what you all think about Silicon Valley today and all these 24-year-old, you know, unicorn leaders. This was a big deal to be 24 and black and start an investment firm. We were the first minority-owned firm ever started. So... John has gone to Princeton. I meet him as I'm interviewing to go to Princeton. And I literally try to stay in touch with him. And I'm, my words, hustling. You know, I'm like, I need to know people. I got to figure out how I'm going to learn my way around business, get a job one day. I came from a difficult circumstance, youngest of six kids, single mom, evicted a lot, phone disconnected, cars repossessed, you name it, government cheese, the whole thing. (laughs) So I meet John, and I realize I could learn a lot from him. My sophomore year, I ask him if I could be a summer intern. He says yes. So I work at the firm that summer. And every Saturday, I would go in on Saturday mornings and sort the mail and put it in his chair. And so one morning at like 9 in the morning, he walks in, and I'm literally sitting in the foyer of the office, the the reception area, and I'm sorting all this mail in piles based upon the person's name. And he walks in, he says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm sorting the mail. He said, who told you to do that? I said, no one. I just know you like information fast. And so I just thought, I don't have anything to do, so I'll just come here and sort the mail. And he said, how, you've been doing this since you started? I said, yes. So he said, he sat down on the floor with me, and he started sorting the mail with me. And every Saturday after that, he came and sorted the mail with me. So then I get a job working at Ariel. And I know that every Saturday morning he goes to McDonald's to read. And he goes to this McDonald's on Wabash in Chicago under the train station. And so I just show up. Like, bad stalker feeling, I know. (laughs) But it was in a good way. And I show up, and I first look at everything he reads. And the next week I get all the same newspapers and magazines and everything. And I don't talk. And so my whole thought is, if he wants to talk to me, he'll talk. So I just wait for him to talk, but otherwise I just sit there. And so sometimes he looks up and he'll say something. And week after week, month after month, he started to say more and more. I'll say, like, why don't you look into this or give me scraps out of his pocket or ask me to follow up on things. So the reason I told those formative stories was I saw I could learn from him and I attached myself to him. I didn't ask him to do anything. I just made myself available in a way that really served me well. So now I'm 26 years, 25 years old. John is taking me around the country to meet with people that he thinks I should know. He calls the CEO of Vanguard, whose name is Jack Bogle, who's on the board of Princeton with him, who founded the Vanguard group. And he said, I've got this young woman who went to Princeton, and I really want him to meet you, her to meet you. And he's like, yeah, great. He's not excited about it. So he said, I really want her to meet you. I want her to, you know, you're, you're an industry legend. And so he said, I'm taking a train from New York to Philadelphia on this day at this time. You can come and ride the train with me. So John and I flew to New York, landed at the airport, went to Grand Central, no, sorry, uh, Penn Station, got on the train with him in the, like, just the food car, and we rode the train with him for Philadelphia. From from New York to Philadelphia, and on that train, John said, this was important to me because Melody's going to be president of Ariel when she's 30. And I was like, what? And he said, I told my board, but they said she has to wait until she's 30. And I'm, like, pissed off about that, right? (laughs) And he says, and so I need to get her as trained as possible before then, and you are a legend. And so I want this two hours for her to learn from you. But she'll engage and ask you questions. So we, la- we got to Philadelphia. I got off the train with John, and we flew back to Chicago. And that was John making us available to him. And so it was just a really interesting sort of set of experiences 
that led to the road that really formed my point of view about going out and getting it, not ever waiting for it to come to you, and really not asking, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah it does. But, but, but I'll just build on that. Is that affected how you think about younger people when you see and encounter young, smart people? How to, I mean, how, how has that affected how you lead? So first of all, my chief of staff is a woman named Taylor Goodrich. She's a superstar. She's smart. I have one Brilliant. Of those, by the way. She's in here somewhere. You know, she was at GE Capital. She went to Smith. So, so much presence. And I told, told our board, I said, I am putting, pouring my heart into Taylor because Taylor could run Ariel. I hand her the ball and I give it to her and it's her responsibility to take it and run. And so a perfect example of that, I got this call from Wenton Marsalis at the Lincoln Jazz at Lincoln Center, and he said, Melody, we'd really like you to go on the board. I said, I cannot do that. I said, but I'm going to give you a crazy idea. Take my 28-year-old chief of staff. Now, this board is like heavy breathers. If all these guys are on the board, I said, she can handle it. And she will give me a giant breath of fresh air for you, and I will stand behind her in every request that you have financially. And that's what I feel like the kind of thing that John did for me. And so it's not a paying it forward because right. that is to Ariel's benefit right. and to my own personal benefit. But most of all, it will continue to escalate Taylor's uh, presence in the world, which I think is very important for her. That's remarkable. And, and, and do you continue, even now, do you continue to find that there are people who are mentors for you, sponsors for you, who do still do those things for you? There are so many. I mean, there are so many. The example that I've given often is Bill Bradley is someone that I met when I was 17 years old. And Bill Bradley has been a, you know, there are five people probably that have changed my life. John Rogers is one. Like, let's put our parents out of the picture. My mother, you know, she birthed me. Okay, that's a big deal. And, but John fundamentally helped me to be the person that I am. I cannot ever say enough good things about him, ever. And I told him recently, I said, the one thing that I did not understand, I worked for 28 years for someone who was fundamentally good and kind. He pushed me super hard. He's the hardest customer I have. He's relentless and competitive, and he can be a pain in the ass. (laughs) However, he's always been kind and fair and ethical and good, and I took that for granted. And the cold, cruel world is not like that every day. So that I have great gratitude for and smart and obviously gave me tremendous opportunities, but I ran with them. It was not a one-way street. Bill Bradley gave me like, John gives me tough medicine and Bill Bradley gave it to me in different ways. And I give this story that I met him when I was 17. I was trying to decide if I was going to Princeton or Harvard. I got invited to this breakfast. There were no 17-year-olds in this room. It was basically five or ten business guys from Chicago that I called the heavy breathers. And Bill Bradley took to me. And year after year after year, I formed a relationship with him, again, where I would just call and show up. And I'd go and sit with him at Allen & Company. And one day I'm having lunch with him, and he looks at me, and I've told this story many times where he said, you know, Melody, you could suck the life out of a room. And I was like, he's like, you could be a ball hog. Don't be a ball hog. And I literally sat there and I remember sitting and I remember saying in my mind, first and foremost, don't cry. Because I felt my eyes kind of welling up. And I said, he loves you. He would not say this to be mean. Be curious about what he's saying. And so I asked a lot of questions about it. And he says, you know, if you develop into a fully formed person, (laughs) I was like, if, and I was like 26 years old. I was like, what do I have to do? He's like, it's unclear. (laughs) He said, I'm hopeful, but it is not certain. And so I'm just like, oh my goodness. Like, this is like someone I admire. I think of a hero and they're saying these things to me. And I'm then saying to myself, why is he saying this? Like, accept it. Do not push back. Do not fight. If this feedback is a gift, take it for what it is. And I fundamentally changed that day. And the reason that I say that is, and your um, chief of staff will attest to this. When I walked in, when I meet anyone, the first thing I do is ask them lots of questions about themselves. 
because it takes all the focus off of me and onto them. So I know she came from Toronto. I know she's worked for you for two and a half years. I know that she doesn't have an industry specialist. She works in global um, policy. Like I went through all of that just on the elevator. That's not being manipulative. It's just like I'm here to speak and it could be easily to suck all the air from there to here, turn it back to someone else. And that was what I got out of that. He didn't tell me how to do it. But, and when I sat with you, you know, starting with questions, how is it going? What are you doing? Taking the energy off of myself because I have, it can be a big presence. And so the mentors that I've had, I think most of all what they've done is they've been straight with me. You know, it doesn't help you to for someone to tell you you're terrific. It doesn't make you a better person. It doesn't make you a better right. leader. Right. Jamie Dimon always says in the J.P. Morgan board meetings, um, he says, um, Study the mistakes. He's like, spend all the time on the errors and the mistakes. No high-fiving around here. Admire the mistakes. You know, sit and, 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 and study those. And a lot of people can't handle that. Well, it's harder to do. But, but I also want to come back to lessons learned and experiences. Uh, you know, in some ways, I mean, you, you've been a remarkable leader, but also you're a woman. You're a person of really? color. Really? <laughs> and, and I just wonder, are there any particular things that have served you well as you think about how to navigate the world, especially when often you're probably in the minority in most rooms you're in? I think life is all about perspective and how you approach things. I just rewrote like my, my caption on Instagram and those things, and I put investor, learner, teacher, Happy warrior. I originally had warrior, and then I was like, that sounds a little tough. Because everyone thinks, like, the black woman is like. And I was like, I'm going to put happy warrior, because I actually am happy. And the reason that I say that is when I think about that minority issue, which is absolutely true. At a Starbucks board member once, I was kind of not complaining, but I was asking him some questions about diversity. And he was like, how long have you been black? How long have you been a woman? You know, making it clear, like, this is nothing new. So when I started working in business, I decided to use those things to my advantage. So I said, when I go into rooms, I'm unusual. So instead of being demure about it, to understand that you're going to stand out, I would go to investment conferences or Wall Street things, and people would come up to me, and they're like, you're Melody. And I'm like, how do they know that? Well, I was the only one. And so then I started to say, like, I could be like Beyonce or Cher, you know? I don't even need Hobson. So I'm going to, like, milk this. Like, the standing out, I'm going to make it work for me as opposed to make it be some cross that I'm bearing. And the times in which I'm not, people are not open or receptive to that aspect of me, I'm going to figure out how to be unapologetic about who I am. And so that I don't, you know, someone said to me once, can you be strong but not tough, kind but not soft? Can you be not threatened and non-threatening? How do you find all these lines, these edges that you can live on? And so around race and gender, it's that not threatened and non-threatening. I gave a speech at Princeton recently, and I talked about the fact, I said, I came to Princeton. I was the first woman in my family to go to college. I was certainly the first woman in my family to graduate from college. And I said, and I got here from Chicago, youngest of six kids, single mom, and I felt like I perfectly belonged. And no one expected me to say that. I belong there. And I'd worked as hard as everyone else. I felt comfortable there. I didn't feel alienated from the environment. And so can you be in that room in a way that is not lacking in humility, but still feel like you perfectly belong when you're the minority and the woman and not allow ourselves to be um, diminished? Now, at the same time, I can tell you, I tell people sometimes you have to crouch to conquer the line from the art of war. And I give this story I was on a board once with someone who was like megawatt, superstar, business, wealth. And every time I talked to him, if we were standing up, he would back away from me. 
And if we started to talk standing right here by the end of the conversation, which wouldn't be very long, we'd be standing at that other wall <laughs> at the other end. And we just like, I'd notice I'd be walking towards him and he'd be backing up. And I'm like, he's scared of me. Like I'm coming in too hot. So I ran into him in the lobby of the St. Regis Hotel one day. And I was like, I'm going to try a totally different tactic. And so I saw the person. I was like, whisper, hey, great to see you. How you doing? And he, I've got this little smile on my face. And I was like, it's so great to run into you. Like super quiet. And he looks at me and he says, Melody, sit with me. And I was literally in my heart doing the Snoopy happy dance. I was like, conquered, conquered. And the thing was, I wasn't diminishing in myself because I was getting what I wanted. And so some people might think that I, it was intentional, you know. At the end of the day, I was sitting at that table learning from him. And so I felt like I won. But I had to modulate in order for it to be comfortable for him and find that non-threatening edge. Right, right. You know, well, well, one of the things you've been very uh, outspoken about is obviously the importance of diversity in business, uh, whether it's on boards, among CEOs. And you see a lot of companies, both the ones you invest in, but also ones you're on boards of and so forth. What do you think works well? What isn't, I mean, we're struggling with these issues at McKinsey ourselves. I mean, we don't have, we're not where we want to be on these issues of diversity, whether it's gender or, or uh, ethnic diversity. What do you think works uh, what, do you th- what do you see companies doing wrong and doing right in tackling that issue? So this is the way I describe it, except everyone here is a millennial. I am not. I'm Gen X. And so I did not have new math. <laughs> I had the old stuff where you carry the one, you know, that kind of thing. And I remember when I was a kid in school, our teacher would say, you get partial credit if you show your work. You might get the wrong answer, but I'm going to give you partial credit. Corporate America wants partial credit for showing their work, but getting the wrong answer. They do. They like, they want pats on the back for like trying. And as my husband says, Yoda's dad, do or do not, there is no try, right? You either did it or you didn't. Every other thing we do gets measured. And as I like to say, it was a line that I learned from a CEO, math has no opinion. But in this area, we want credit for trying. You don't get credit for trying to meet earnings, expectations. You don't get credit for trying to deliver the product on time to your client. You either do or you do not. So first and foremost is this whole idea that trying is enough is not good enough in any other area of business. Two, in any other area of business, you don't shoot at targets you haven't set. But here, a target becomes a quota. So there's this debate about, well, you can't have a standard about what percentage of the team is going to be diverse or this, that, or the other. You can't do that. But I don't know anything you can actually target you can hit if you don't know what the plan is. But people are very reticent to set a plan on this issue. Three, we all know this in business. You get what you incent. So everyone says diversity is super important. I have been in so many rooms, and I've been in rooms of CEOs, and I was like, every CEO in this room, raise your hand if your compensation is tied to diversity goals inside of your company. No one ever does. Raise your hand if your compensation is tied to margin improvement. Raise your hand if your compensation is tied to profitability. Like all these things, there you get hands start flying, but you get to diversity, which is super important. The, you, you don't have the incentives that are there financially. And so I say to CEOs all the time, you talk to me about diversity. Can you be a superstar at this company and fail on diversity goals? Is that, can you get your full bonus? And if you can, it's not important. Because you can't be a superstar at the company and harass people anymore. You can't be a superstar at the company. You know, like you can't. It doesn't happen anymore. So if you're failing on that, it's telling me it's not important. And last but not least, I would say, and this is what I've said in a lot of meetings, which sounds very aggressive, but I believe it's true. If you don't take this seriously and you don't move forward on this issue, it's corporate suicide. It's not a question of if. It's just when you will die. 
It just it just is when. Now, maybe it'll go longer than you think, right, right. but over time, it will not work. And what really amazes me, especially here in San Francisco, and I've been very vocal about this, it's not even about age. Because we have, of course, companies run by very young people who grew up in, quote, diverse environments, and the companies have no women or minorities. And if you noticed, I mean, because you've been watching this issue for quite some time and talking about it, has it gotten better at the leadership level, CEO level versus the board? Because boards are, seem to be a whole different kettle of fish these days when it comes to diverse boards and even CEO. I mean, there, there seems to be a little bit more diversity on boards. But, but the interesting the thing is to look at the numbers. Again, math has no opinion. Right. So first of all, America is very low on the totem pole of board diversity, just FYI, partially because of some mandates that exist in Europe. Right. So France has the most women on boards in the world, 40%. The UK is at 30. America is literally straddling between 18 and 20. We go back yeah. and forth. And we've stayed at that level for a very long time. So if you look back maybe a decade, it was closer to like 16. Yeah. But we're not yeah. talking giant jumps. It's yeah. not one of these things where you wake up and you're like, wow, wow. the needle has really moved. And the same is true around uh, so, minorities, yeah, African-Americans, yeah. People, people of color, Latino, et cetera, Asian. Interestingly, the Asian number on boards is very low, oh, despite is. Asian representation in certain parts of our economy. Yeah. And so while it feels like we've made a ton of progress relative to the rest of the world, we really haven't. Right. And relative to all the conversation that has occurred, you would think these numbers would be much bigger. Right. Because white men represent, I think it's something like 30% of the U.S. population, but they represent north of 70% of board seats. That just doesn't make sense. Right. So, um, yeah, and it's, by the way, it's actually something Alexis has been tracking quite a bit. So, so Alexis, who's the office manager here, does a, a survey that we've been doing the Wall Street Journal for like five years now on uh, women and diversity in the, in the corporate environment. But I want to I make sure we also expand to other topics. There's so much we could cover, Melody, because uh, you've recently been talking also about the role of capitalism in society, about inclusion, about inequality. Um, Can I just say one thing? Yes. Just one quick thing. Please, please do. Because the one thing I think, you know, I see the people of color in this room, and because we exist in the rarest of air, people think there are a million of us. You know, like they really, there just aren't. I know how rare you all are. I know how rare the women in, women in this room are in terms of the whole scheme of corporate America. I know that because I can go whole days and not see anyone who looks like me. And yet there's this false narrative that there's so much progress has been made because of the conversation. There's a false narrative over we had a black president. And it's interesting. Right, right. It feels like we've gone backwards in many respects. But right. uh, let's, op let's, let's open it up, though. Um, I, I could go on. I was actually going to try to take us to issues of inequality and even ask you about, you know, after we have an investor in the room, I was going to ask you about the recession, but that's a whole other t conversation. <laughs> Happy to do that. Uh, Happy but to we'd do like that. to open it up to the room if there are questions in the room. Otherwise, Melody and I will keep talking here. But uh, Phil, please put up your hand if you have a question, uh, if you want to jump into the conversation. Nobody? Go ahead. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I really um, appreciate your TED Talk on being colorblind. Thank you for putting that out to the world. Um, my question is how, without um, putting the onus on us as people of color to always have to um, be the example, how do you, how do we be colorblind? And at the same time, not have to be the ones that have to define how to exist around us. So the question is, she referenced my Color Brave um, TED Talk. Thank you so much for watching it. TED Talks are really hard. Um, it's one of the most watched ones, by the way. It's, it's so it's, hard. You have to memorize them. <laughs> you know, when's the last time you memorized 16 minutes? <laughs> from begin There's not a piece of paper, a card, a note, nothing. I memorize. <laughs> but, um, but the question is, you know, the onus being on the minority person to carry the flag around these issues, you know, 
why is that? You know, do, do we always have to be the one to do that? And I'm going to have an answer you are not going to like, which is yes. You know, I, I was at Princeton recently, and I was talking to a bunch of young students, and they were like, we're exhausted. We're constantly trying to explain things. And I said, listen, this is the fact. We know more about them than they know about us. That is just true. And we are the most elite people of color in the world. It's the least we can do is carry this burden. The least. Because we are not in a field picking cotton. And the people who were in that field picking cotton sacrificed a lot for us. So if the worst burden that I carry is making sure that I advocate and and promote and answer questions and make people more comfortable and explain things that they don't know or understand, like when I get braids at Christmas, yes, I wash my hair, or that, yes, I wear sunblock, or, you know, all of those things that we know that we've talked about a thousand times. If that is the, the burden that I have to carry, that's nothing. And so just get used to it, because it will be many lifetimes before we will not have to carry that burden, especially us. Others jump in, by the way, um, if, if you have questions. One of the things you've been talking about quite a bit about recently, actually, is uh, these this issues of inequality. And I know philanthropically, in other ways, you're, you're very involved in those activities. What are your thoughts about what needs to happen about how capitalism works if we're going to make progress? So I've been saying for a long time that I think capitalism needs to be more inclusive. But make no stigma about it. I'm a capitalist. Full, there is no other system. And so this idea of socialism, some of these other things, they just don't work. I studied all of these subjects in college, um, from economics to math to uh, politics. I was in the Woodrow Wilson School of International Relations and Public Policy. The data is just the data. So, um, but at that, that said, there is so much room for improvement, and this improvement needs to be real. So it's everything from something very simple. People spend a lot of time talking about a minimum wage. It's a living wage that is needed in America because San Francisco, $15 is very different than $15 in Nashville. And that is just a fact. So just trying to equalize this with simple math does not work. And you could make $15 an hour in San Francisco and still be living in a car. We know that. And so in a society that is truly as wealthy and as um, thoughtful as our society is, we should be able to solve for some of these issues in a much more fundamentally right. um, fair way. And that's everything from the um, wage equality, which still the gap is giant between right. men and women right. doing the same job, to... The mommy tax, which happens when a woman leaves the workforce for some period to have a child. They say an educated woman loses about a million dollars in salary, promotions, retirement funds, 401k plan, all of that, over the course of a career for every child they have versus a man. That data is out there. And so when you look at all of these things... Um, it doesn't quite get there. Right. And the worst thing is for us to think that that is okay. No, at the same time, I believe fundamentally America, the American dream, is that you could exceed your wildest expectations. There are no limits or caps to your success. But I consider it a privilege to pay taxes. That's my, that's my right. That's the, the right. right to walk on this soil here. And so my taxes should be fair and equitable versus someone else who makes a lot less than me. So just effective tax rate differences, all of that, I think, you know, regressive tax, taxes, all of this really, really, really needs to be re-looked at. So it does not create the, um, the differences that exist. So I'm not about, like, that CEO makes 16 times the worker. Like, I don't think that those formulas work. But I do think that when you think about tax policy, when you think about um, equal opportunity, when you think about fair wages by gender and race, all of those things have to be attacked. 
Yeah, no, in fact, one of the things that uh, we've been spending some time on at, uh, on the, at the McKinsey Global Institute is looking at what we call the social contract. And when you look at that, back to your point about the living wage, uh, the basic things, housing, education, transportation, have skyrocketed. Uh, and in a way that, you know, way beyond what wages can keep up with. And of course, it varies whether you're in Nashville or, or San Francisco. But I see Brian as a question. Let me pick on Brian. Also, what it was like when you were in 1950 50. versus today. Yeah. You could raise a family. You could go on vacation, vacation, have a house, a car, and send your kids to college. Exactly. But Brian? I, I did raise Oh, I, I, thought, I thought you raised a oh, Sorry, Tawanda? Yeah. Sure, I have a question. Um, thank you so much for coming. It's amazing to you and you've achieved so so much. I'm curious what 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 more what, what what aspirations you still have because I feel like you've reached you know an incredible mountaintop already and you said you're still climbing and hill. So I'm very curious what what are your further aspirations and how do you keep yourself motivated and excited? So I've, our Christmas card last year, I quoted Laird Hamilton and I said never let your me- memories be bigger than your dreams. You have to dream big every day. I think that's fundamentally which gives you purpose and fulfillment and joy. It does give me. So I don't look back at anything that I've done and think, you know, done, game over. In fact, I wake up every day. My husband and I were having this conversation the other day. I like thinking I'm kind of mediocre, you know, like thinking I could do better and thinking that we could be more precise. And I'm always seeing the edges that could be better. And so that really does fuel me. I think Ariel has so much further to go. I think we have more brand than assets. I think we have, I want all of you to want to invest with us. I want you to think, you know, these are smart people that are driving returns that are going to allow me to fulfill my own financial dreams. Um, So until that happens, I have a lot to do. And I love that line from Chuck Schwab, who said once about Schwab, he said, around here, we feel like we're curing cancer. Well, we feel the same way at Ariel around our beliefs in financial literacy and, you know, capitalism that is fair and equitable for everyone and all of these issues that we talk about, as well as putting points on the board for pension fund, pensioners and the like. So all of that is really, really driving me. And then when I think about, I honestly, I have to say this, I was just on the phone downstairs with someone before I came up. I am beyond overwhelmed by the fact that my life is a miracle. And because my life is such a miracle, because I wasn't in a field picking cotton, because I've had the opportunities to do and be and learn from the best, I owe so much to society, so much. And to think that I am done and I am not paying that back would be a travesty to all the people who invested in me, to all the people who sacrificed for me, and all, especially the black and brown kids who don't have anywhere close to what I have. And this is not that I can fix that, but I can make my voice known, I can agitate, I can donate, I can make sure that on that and many other issues that I'm consequential to the extent that I can be and let people know I'm not letting you off the hook and I'm not letting myself off the hook. And I feel that way about not just people of color because we have had these unique opportunities in this rare air that we live in, but everyone in this room, everyone born in America. You know, if you're born in America, we're not in Syria. We're not migrant workers trying to figure out how to find our way. They did a story the other day on CBS News. The kids had no shoes. It was freezing outside. I'm like, it, it could always, someone is fighting for life. And... We need to understand what responsibility that has for us. So I feel like I will die with my boots on. I want my child to see that, that until my dying day, I have been a productive member of this society because I owe society that. Wow. Well, I I could certainly attest to that. I I, I can tell you even just before we came into this room, uh, what we were talking about, she was, you know, Melody's always dreaming big. Literally, we were talking about all the other things that she wants to do, all these amazing things she still has to do. Uh, and I remember even when we were in, uh, in, in Aspen, and a few of us, we're actually the only like three of us in that whole place, uh, you were agitating and pushing on, what do we do about board membership? That's what you're on. How do, we, how do we make sure we fix that? So I think I could certainly attest that you're always thinking about all the other things we still have to do that are lying ahead of us. I see a couple of hands up. Um, go ahead, right in front. 
I would love to ask about feedback. You mentioned earlier that Jamie Diamond says we only focus on what's going wrong. When there are many layers of stereotypes that can feed some of the work that are given to you as feedback, how do you think about constructive versus deconstructive feedback and how you take that on? What you accept versus what you realize is not going to be true to who you are and build on the strengths that you have. I'm so happy you asked that question because what I tell the young people in my office, we actually had someone come in and teach us about feedback. And so first of all, that when we give it at Ariel, we first ask someone if they're open to it. And we also said, you don't filter feedback based upon if you like the person or don't like that. And there's no such thing as constructive or non-constructive. It just is. And you decide if you accept it or not. And so what this coach said to us once, he said, you know, if someone calls you a horse's ass, you might think about it. And you might reject it. The second time someone calls you a horse's ass, you might think about it again. And the third time someone calls you, calls you a horse's ass, buy a saddle. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so it's interesting because when I have gotten feedback, there are times I've gotten feedback and I didn't agree. But I didn't reject it and filter it based upon who's giving it, how are they saying it, were they nice? Like, I can't stand the people who are like, you have to say something constructive, and let me tell you about your learning, you know, your, your ch- challenges. They use all these words. Yes. And I'm just like, give it to me. Don't, like, give me, like, because you can hear it better if I say it this way. I don't like that. Um, I just really don't. But also there are times people have said things to me that I'm like, I just, you know, I remember once I swim. And I've gone through phases. I try to learn something new every decade. So I went through this decade of, like, obsessively working on swimming. And so I was swimming before a meeting once. And I came to my meeting. My hair was slicked. And one of the people in the room said to me, I was the only woman, what happened to our girl? And I remember I was like, "Mm mm-hmm. I was like, and you wear khakis with stains on them. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't say it out loud, but that's what I was thinking. But I did say to myself, I said, interesting, I said, note to self, like, know what you're dealing with. You may decide you're not going to come with your hair slicked, or you may proudly come with your hair slicked, but just understand, you don't have to react to that in any kind of, you know, fighting way, but just be very aware. There's a lens there through which that person sees you. And it wasn't good or bad, it just was. You know, it just was. So it was feedback in a very specific sort of way. It didn't necessarily change how I felt about myself, but it was just something that I filed away to note. Um, and there are times there have been feedback. I, You know, John Rogers used to always give me the same feedback. Still does. Um, now we're co-CEOs. But remember, I was like his, I called him myself his grasshopper. I was just the person who did everything he wanted to get done. My schedule and life revolved around him, literally. And he, he used to tell me in my reviews, he was always like, the merits of your argument don't matter. It's how you win. He would say that to me all the time. He's like, you are fiercely logical and intellectual about your argument, but you're winning badly. And, like, you're, like, leaving bodies. And... Yeah, you might be right, but it's cost you everything. That was like, he had to tell me over and over and over again until I finally got it. And, those, you know, that was just like, it was valuable, and he never let up on it. And so now when I'm in those kind of modes, that's why I said happy warrior, not just warrior. Don't be ready for the fight. Understand how much your personality can overwhelm someone how much fear you might induce in someone, how much you might intimidate them. And, and then understand it's not just about your logic. Um, so I can, I can give you example after example of feedback, and sometimes it's who we hear it from, when we hear it, what we're open and ready for. But I'm trying to stay open. I do these things, and I'll ask my teammates, how did I do? Is there, did I answer a question badly? Someone told me, Michelle Obama, I love this story. She did that book tour last year. She was in all these cities selling out stadiums. And after every single 
uh, event. She went back to her room with her entire staff, and it would be like 11 o'clock at night, and they would dissect the entire event and go through what worked and what didn't work every single time. I was like, they didn't get like, this is our 10th one, we're good. (laughs) Every single time. She wanted feedback. And I was like, that's why when she gave, for example, that speech at that Democratic National Convention, I was like, I literally, I was like, I've never seen this kind of gift manifest itself so quickly. And it shows, like, she's an unbelievable student. But you had to take the good with the bad in that situation. And I think we need to be less sensitive. You know, we get real sensitive. <laughs> well, we get take... the neck going. And... <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a couple more questions. So I see one over there and one over there. And then we'll start to wrap up. And then Manny, you get the last question. Uh, question about how you make the investments uh, at, your, at your firm. How are you weaving inclusion and, and some of these notions into the companies that you invest in? Oh, that's a great one. So we own small and medium-sized companies in our domestic portfolio, and that's what we're known for. John really was a believer in the efficient market theory. Bert Malkiel, who wrote A Random Walk Down Wall Street, was his corporate finance professor. That book is in its ninth or 10th or 11th edition. I can't even remember. And so we buy into this whole idea that the market is efficient, and the only way to outperform is to go to less efficient areas. So we do international and global because there's less coverage there, and we do small and mid-cap in the U.S. And so based upon that belief, when you look at our small and mid-cap portfolios and you overlay our beliefs around what makes for a 21st century company, we are constantly, we are often one of the largest shareholders in the company, number one, number two shareholder in the company. There was one point we owned 30% of Sotheby's as an example. And because we're such a large shareholder, we ask them about their board. We probe them on their management teams. We're pushing on these issues to say, if you're going to be good, you need to understand all the potential customers that you have. So Sotheby's is a great example. They had an all-white male board, and because of us and our questioning, they diversified their board. We didn't pick the people that went on the board because we don't take board seats of the companies that we invest in because it would affect our trading, our our windows in which we can trade. But we did say, this is important to us. And typically, when you have that kind of power, we're just telling people, use your power for good. And so we go to pension funds and say that to them. If you're CalPERS or CalSTRS, 25% of publicly traded companies in the state of California do not have a woman on the board. I bet my salary and bonus this year, they own shares of every single one of their companies by virtue of the size of their funds. They could say, this is a non-starter. Now, interestingly, the governor did. Jerry Brown put a law into place in California that he said he knew would be contested. It would go to court and they would lose. But he wanted to put a stake in the ground saying that this is important. So we try to use the weight of our own influence inside of these companies to affect that change. That's a good question. Go. Well, thank you very much for, for coming today. I thank you. Everybody's really grateful to have you here. Thank you. Um, I want to go back to the feedback comment, which is particularly around what, I, what I've noticed is that sometimes there's a delta between like, what you receive in person in feedback and then what comes out, say, like when there's actually formal feedback. So how do you think about just, like developing a strong enough relationship with people to get like true, honest feedback, even from people who weren't necessarily the same skin color as yourself. And that's why I said you can't, you, you can't filter the feedback based upon who's giving it. So you've got to start, stop, start with that, at least I believe. This is what worked for me. Two, you have to ask for it and really mean it, and you have to ask for it a lot. Yeah. And it, has, it can't be tell me what I want to hear. It's tell me how I could be better. Tell me what I could do to improve. Um, this is what I was thinking. Does this make sense to you, giving solutions? Um, and I think that that leads to a really strong back and forth. People know when you really want it, and they know when you don't. Don't. And I can tell you from my experience, most people don't really want it. They just don't. And when you tell them the truth, they don't like hearing it. So the, that's why I purposefully gave you the Bill Bradley example, because I did sit there in that room and said, don't cry. Like, I was really telling myself that in my head, 
pull, do everything you can to not well up because he won't do this again if you cry. And then you won't be able to, you know, why bother if you're going to like, he's going to think he hurt my feelings. And then he's going to say like, I got to pick her up off the floor, dust her off. That's another 20 minutes of conversation. (laughs) You know, like I can tell you I've had that. Um, And it's like, not, never mind. So, you know, really mean it when you ask for it, but ask for it from your friends, ask for it from your family. Ask for, I tell my husband all the time, I'm like, what do you see? I was on the phone once in the car and he was like, listen, Melody, you're talking to a colleague at Ariel. He only heard one side. And he said, you think you're co- talking to him with a cotton ball and he thinks you're hitting him with a hammer. There's a disconnect here. And I said, how do you know that? He says, because you don't speak with qualifiers. And you were speaking with so many qualifiers with him. And I know it was your attempt at gentle. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, wasn't working. (laughs) But it was interesting. Like, he could hear it. And sometimes you need someone who's just, I was like, if you can't have, like, a girlfriend or a spouse or a husband or a wife or whatever, they, whatever it is, give you really honest feedback, you're lost. Yeah. You know, I always told people, I, 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 I had a year where I told myself, your goal is to be intellectually honest with yourself because we're not. And I kept saying, I was like, be intellectually honest. Do not make yourself feel better by rationalizing a conversation, something you did. If you are an asshole, admit it. Admit it. Like, there were times I would be talking to someone, and I would go back to them, and I was like, I was a jerk. I am so sorry I did that. Like, I got short with you. I could have been nicer. But I was really frustrated, and I was annoyed. And it doesn't excuse it. But in my head, I'm telling myself, you're wondering why people are scared of you or running away from you. You're treating this person badly. Like, we don't tell ourselves that stuff. We say, well, they gave a dumb answer. They deserved it. Or this, you know, that's how we rationalize it. So not that intellectual honesty starts with you and then asking for that feedback, meaning it. Manny, you get the last question. My question is, as, as an investor, how, how are you thinking about sustainability? And but what about diversity? But in terms of sustainability, what are people doing well in terms of the sit on boards and what they're not doing well? And how much lip service is being paid to it versus you think it's going to be a real trend that's going to drive a lot of investments? So this is every room, every room. ESG is, is front and center. I'll give you one example. Shareholder meetings are no longer about earnings or strategy, shareholder meetings have boiled down to ESG protests and issues and people coming to say, what about this? What about that? And boards, we now know that. That's number one. So they know they're going to get it. It's real now. Two, it's not like a fad. Um, Two, this is one of those situations where younger people see this very, very differently, and they're not playing around. And so the example that I gave, and I I will tell you right now, I gave this in a Starbucks board meeting. I said, my at the time she was three years old, my daughter went to a school called Presidio Knowles, and on her first day of school, she came back, and I said, well, what did you talk about at school? She's three. And she said, we learned recycling. And I literally, I have to tell you, because I'm from Chicago, I did like the eye roll, San Francisco. I sent my kid to this school where the first day it's recycling and how to separate trash. And I'm making all these, you know, statements to my husband. I was like, trip typical. And, And then she said to me, she's like, you know, mom, she was three. Straws kill fish. Three years old. So I was in the Starbucks board meeting, and I was like, my three-year-old thinks straws kill fish. Three. She won't use a straw. And I was like, and then when you look in the ocean, what do you see? Straws, right, when you see the trash. Now, we were already on our path of our strawless cup, you know, which is like a sippy cup. Right, right. Um, 
But it was fascinating to have that conversation. But then at the same time, you have to understand, in America, one company makes paper straws. One in the entire United States. They can't do McDonald's, let alone McDonald's and Starbucks, let alone McDonald's and Starbucks and all these other. So it's like one company right now does this. And so you can have every intention, and now you have to get from an intention to an outcome. And when you have 30,000 stores, you don't get there in 10 minutes. And so you have to be very thoughtful about a path. And I will use us as an example. We just put our markers down, and we're serious about them. And they, those markers are going down all over corporate America. I mean, you and saw Larry's letter, right? Right. Larry Fink has been clear about it. We ask all of our companies questions about their environmental records, their board governance, their sustainability um, uh, goals. All of these things are now real. So that is now going – because the risk to not doing it is a new real business risk. And I think people understand that, that they are now quantifying in terms of lawsuits or in terms of fines, regulatory developments. All of that now is being listed in K's and Q's. Well, it sounds like it's time for the politicians to catch up. To- well, it's interesting because I think the, the, that some of the politicians are making it very clear. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see if um, Greta Thunberg becomes the, gets the Nobel Prize. Right. I mean, it'll be fascinating to see... Right. You know, the mere fact that she's in the conversation sure. says a lot. Well, Melody, thank you. I know we've gone way over time. And thank you've you been, for you've having me. You've been very me. generous, you. by the way, with your time. So please join me in thanking so Melody. So great. Thank Thanks for all you're doing. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com slash MGI or on Twitter at McKinsey underscore MGI. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Anna Bernasek and me, Michael Chewy. Our producer is Lauren Melling, and our audio engineer is Colin Warren.